Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Sometimes life takes an unexpected turn and everything changes. You are headed east and then something happens and you discover that you're now headed west. Things are looking down and then something occurs and you suddenly realize things are now looking up. Sometimes life can take a totally unexpected turn. Such was the case for the woman told about by the writer Ken Davis. Ken Davis speaks of the woman who was in her kitchen, washing dishes, preparing food, whatever other item she was doing, when she happened to hear a commotion and looked out the window over the kitchen sink. What she saw horrified her. There was their German shepherd. Maybe she would have said it's my husband's German shepherd at that moment. But there was their German shepherd, and in his mouth he had the neighbor's rabbit. And he was shaking that rabbit for all he was worth. Well, as you can imagine, she screamed. She raced out the door. On the way out the door, grabbing the broom, raced over to where the dog was and began to beat on the dog, yelling at the dog to drop the rabbit. Well, finally, the dog complied and dropped it. She realized now I am in a real pickle because the neighbor who owned the pet rabbit was a neighbor that she did not get along with. There was no small amount of ill will between them. And she thought, this is now going to be horrific. So thinking fast, trying to decide what she was going to do to somehow contain the damage, she suddenly had an idea. She grabbed the rabbit, ran back into her house, and began to wash the rabbit. Washed it carefully. Washed all the dirt and the blood, everything she could find, washed it off until the rabbit was clean. And then she took her hair dryer and she blew all the fur dry. And then she took a comb and she combed it all out. By the time she was done, that was one good-looking rabbit. (laughs) She took the rabbit then and sneaked over to the neighbor's house. In a furtive way, managed to get it back into the rabbit hutch and the hutch door closed. She got it all set up so that it would look like everything was fine. And then she ran back home. Now she knew if anybody discover or when they discover, there will be no blame on my dog or on me. It didn't take that long. An hour or two later, she suddenly heard screaming from the neighbor's backyard. She knew what had happened. But she ran out. Responding to the screaming, now she was overflowing with compassion. Ran over to her neighbor. What happened? Her neighbor's eyes were large. Her neighbor was pointing at the rabbit hut. She said, it's our rabbit. It's our rabbit. She said, what happened? She said, I don't know. He died yesterday and we buried him, but he's back.
That's the way life is. Sometimes it takes a most unexpected turn. Now, it's in thinking of that story that the preacher and writer John Ortberg writes this. People in the ancient world knew that dead rabbits tend to stay dead. They knew that dead rabbis tend to stay dead. A scholar by the name of N.T. Wright notes, there were many messianic movements in the first century. In every case, the would-be Messiah got crucified by Rome just as Jesus did. And this is what he writes. In not one single case do we hear the slightest mention of the disappointed followers claiming their hero had been raised from the dead. They knew better. That just doesn't happen. But sometimes you're headed east and suddenly you discover after a momentous moment you're headed west. Life changes. That's the reality of that weekend when Christ went through his passion. Last night we celebrated Good Friday here in this sanctuary. We gathered together and the, the, the service was solemn and sober and somber. The truth is, there is no other way to experience Good Friday. I was somewhat concerned about that. My wife and I had a conversation this morning about a conversation she had last night with Virgil Nielsen. Virgil Nielsen said, in thinking of that, if people don't move away somber, grief-stricken to some degree, from a Good Friday service. It hasn't truly been a Good Friday service. And that's what happened. Because we paused last night to consider the realities of that Friday. As we did so, we listened to the commentary of two disciples on the road to Emmaus two days later, but referring back to Good Friday. We listened as they told the story, but we especially paid attention to one line that they uttered. It was this line, but we had hoped. We had hoped. We had hoped. But now hope was gone, dead and buried with the Messiah in a stone-cold tomb. Now it was over. Now, before we move further in the story, we have to recognize at least one reality that is true about Calvary. It's one that we sometimes miss, and yet it is so fundamentally important that the late great theologian and scholar John Stott suggests that without it, he could not believe in God. I want you to listen to the words of this preeminent scholar, one of the preeminent scholars of the 20th century, when he writes about God and the cross. This is what Stott says. I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one Nietzsche ridiculed as God on the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? I have entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of the Buddha, his legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look on his face detached from the agonies of the world. 
But each time, after a while, I have had to turn away. And in imagination, I have turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross. Nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. Our sufferings become more manageable in the light of his. There is still a question mark against human suffering, but over it we boldly stamp another mark, the cross that symbolizes divine suffering. The cross of Christ is God's only self-justification in a world such as ours. And then he quotes the verse. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. That, said Stott, is a God in whom I can believe, a God who knows, a God who understands, a God who has experienced the realities of Good Friday. But now we move away from that. We move away to read a text. In fact, today's text is just one verse long. We read a text written by the apostle Peter. But I can't read you Peter's words without reminding you of the backdrop behind the words. Bear in mind as we read the text that weekend, devastated dreams, destroyed hopes, Profoundly uncertain followers, people asking questions about what next, where do we go from here. Every Christ follower that weekend would have been emotionally distraught. But there was one, there was one whose pain and sorrow was far deeper than the rest. You see, there was one whose darkness was so dark it was palpable. And such was the case because of the backdrop, because of what he had done. His name, Peter. It was on Thursday night, the night before the crucifixion, that Peter had been unapologetic in his statements. He had said to Jesus, all these others, these others, yes, they may flee, I never will. You say that I'm going to deny you, Lord? Lord, with all due respect, it is impossible. I will never deny you. Self-confidence oozed from the pores of Peter's being. And then he failed. Spectacularly failed. Failed in a way that few failed. You can only imagine what those minutes, what those hours throughout that long Friday evening, throughout that long Sabbath day, throughout that even longer Sabbath night when Peter could not think, could not sleep, could not talk without the overwhelming burden of grief threatening to crush the very life from his body. Luke tells us something about what happened. He said it was while they were at the trial, while Jesus stood there bleeding, 
bruised, lacerated, that he could overhear Peter denying him. And Luke says that there came a moment after Peter's third denial, Luke says, Jesus turned and looked at him, just looked. No comment, no contempt, no condemnation, just looked. I can't tell you what was in that look because Luke doesn't tell us. Certainly it must have been a look filled with sorrow and pain, but equally filled with love and acceptance. Because what Luke does tell us is that after Jesus had looked at Peter, that Peter immediately went outside, and Luke's words are, he wept bitterly. The original word in the Greek for bitterly calls up a profound anguish of soul. He wept bitterly. That's the backdrop. The backdrop to the text we will read. And now the text, just one verse long, from Peter's first letter. 1 Peter chapter 1. Fast forward some years. We're not absolutely certain how many, but it's been some years. And Peter, probably now much older, sits to either dictate or to himself write the letter that will bear his name, the first letter to bear his name. He does what would be expected of any letter writer and certainly any letter writer in his day and time, and that is he introduces who he is and he tells to whom this letter is written. But then, the first thing he does, remember the backdrop and listen to these words. 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Does it surprise you that Peter begins there? That Peter recognizes that anything he has now, any life, any future, any hope, came as a gift of divine grace. Praise be, he says, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has given us, us. I appreciate that, Peter. I appreciate you including me in that. I appreciate you including all of us in that. I appreciate you including every single one who has known the depths of darkness, who has known the power and strength of failure. I appreciate you including us. However, do not make a mistake when you read this. This is autobiographical. This is intensely personal to Peter. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has given me a new birth 
into a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You understand what Peter is saying? He's saying when Jesus stood over that broken tomb, when he emerged from the rent sepulcher, when he declared, I am the resurrection and the life, Peter experienced new birth into a living hope. It changed everything. On an infinitely more mundane level, we've all seen that. If you've ever watched an athletic contest, a football game, a basketball game in which the member of one of the teams does something that appears it will cost his team the game, you've seen it. A running back fumbles the ball. A point guard misses the critical free throw. And now it appears that the momentum has shifted. It's moving the other direction. That team will now lose. And what happens? That ever-peering, ever-leering eye of the camera finds that player trying to lose himself among the other players on the sideline, but it finally picks him out and focuses in. There he is, one that blew it. That's why we're in the shape we're in. But you know, life and God, suddenly an interception, a three-pointer, and it all shifts back. Now, when the team celebrates its win, what does the eye of the camera do? It looks for that player who is celebrating more than all of his teammates because it is not just the win he celebrates. It is the relief. It's not all on me, that failure. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has given us a new birth into a living hope. Good Friday, when we leave a service, feels like hope is gone. We listened to the two disciples last night on the road to Emmaus, but we also listened to two friends here in Loma Linda. I want to invite them to come to the platform at this time, Maggie Cotton and Dale Isaiah. Because I know not all were here last night, I have to set a bit of the stage. I am profoundly appreciative to and grateful to Dale and Maggie for their willingness to share. Because what they will share here this morning is intensely personal. Dale, a friend of mine now, for it's hard to believe, but not too far short of 30 years, has walked the pathway of grief to Montecito twice. As I was first getting to know Dale, it was because of B, his first wife. Lost her battle with illness in the hospital just near us. But then, not too many months ago, we were back again back at Montecito for Janelle. That is the context in which Dale comes to share today. 
and Maggie. Maggie known to many in this community. Maggie who in one moment, in one fiery plane crash, lost two sisters, two brothers-in-law, and several children in wiping out two entire families of hers in addition to another family and the pilot. That is the context. Last night we talked about Good Friday. But this morning, this morning, we want to talk about resurrection. We want to talk about Easter. We want to talk about that which Peter discovered at new birth into a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Dale, let me begin with you. I am so appreciative that you're willing to share, and I have a specific question I want to start with, and that's this. In this journey of grief that you have been walking, has there been an experience, a moment, a thought, person, something along those lines, that provided true comfort and hope for you? Almost too many to count. Mm -hmm. Your being there when we terminated life support, I'll never forget. Mm -hmm. Then I had a number of people, I have a wonderful family, very close-knit, who gathered around and supported me. I have good friends in Dan Matthews and Betsy Matthews, who visited me quite often and gave me words of encouragement and left Bible texts for me to think about. One of the Bible texts they left was 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 to 10. Mm. And I realized, at first, it says, almost rejoice in suffering, because God will take care of you, but then you turn and you pass it on and you help someone else. Mm -hmm. So I decided to do that, concentrate more on that. I decided I was instead of, because I was miserable, making everyone miserable around me, <laughs> I decided that I had to start counting my blessings, and my blessings cannot be counted. I was mm -hmm. blessed with two most wonderful women who shared my life. Then I had ups and downs like everyone has. And one day in my reading, I ran across Luke 9, where Jesus said, you want to give good gifts to your children, you wouldn't give a scorpion if he asked for an egg even more so does my father want to give you gifts and give you the gift of the Holy Spirit. Mm. And at that point, that really struck me, and I decided it's time to talk to God again. As I've told you before in this time period, I've never cried so much, I've never prayed so much, and I've never studied the Bible so much in my life. But once more, I sat down, took the uh, Bible, and I talked to God, and I explained to God that I was his, his son hmm. and that I had read this in the Bible as though he didn't know I had done that. <laughs> but I further went on to say, you know how I love my sons. 
I would do anything for them. You say that you're more willing to give me the Holy Spirit than I am to give good gifts to my son. I said, Lord, that's the gift I need the most. I've been struggling. I've been struggling with the ups and the downs. I need the Holy Spirit to give me peace. That was the turning point. Wow. The first time that I can truly say I experienced peace. So no one can say that God doesn't care, God doesn't answer prayer. Amen, Dale. Thank you so much. Maggie, coming out of what is, without overstating the case, a devastating experience. Has there been a moment, an experience, a person, something along your journey that has given you greater comfort or hope? Certainly, and like Dr. Isaiah stated, there were a number of them. Uh, one in particular, though, I remember in 2013, four years after our tragedy, my mom and I were blessed with a flight of visit to Israel. Mm. And we were flying in commercially over the Mediterranean, and we saw land and the soil. And we held each other's hand, and we said, this is why it's all okay. This ground and this soil is why it's all okay. Wow. And then to proceed and see the footsteps of Jesus and the tangible reality of him and what he has done for us all was an incredible experience in the journey. Amen. Yes. Wow. Dale, let me ask you. Uh, you've had a lot of time to think about this. Both of you have. What difference does it make, the resurrection? In other words, if you were a person who did not believe that, what would be different for you? Well, as you and I have discussed before, I repeatedly feel pain in my heart that there are so many people who don't know, who don't have our hope. And I pain for them, and I, I don't know what must they do except... As a physician, I know the mortality rate in the surviving spouse. I know that the incidence of suicide goes up in the surviving spouse. It's a sign of having nowhere to go. What's the point in life? Without the resurrection and without the belief that someday you're going to be re reunited and without the Spirit of God to give you direction and meaning in your life, I don't know how anyone would get by. I've, as I've told you before, I struggled a bit as I came up to the first anniversary of Janelle's passing. But as I approached, I had the thought, and I know that was from God, is when I reached that one-year mark, that was going to be one year less that I had to wait to mm. see Jesus in Janelle. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Dale. But, and I want to add even more importantly, the second thought was, that's one year less that I have to be God's disciple. Mm. And we need to get to work. We need the Holy Spirit to fill us with God's love and pass it on to those around us.
We've got to do what we can to help the cause and help fulfill the mission. Amen, Dale. Thank you. Maggie, the same question. If, if you did not affirm the resurrection, if that wasn't there, what would be different for you? How has it made a difference in your life? Everything would be different because I would not have the promise of seeing them again. Mm. And as I shared um, the day after the accident, we were driving in Butte to go to the site. And I got a phone call from a dear friend. Mm. And she said, Maggie, where are you? And I said, well, we're in Butte, and actually we're heading out right now to the site. And she, without hesitation, she said, Maggie, when you stand there and you wonder why God didn't intervene, they were so close to the airport, why didn't he get them on the ground? Remember, he intervened 2,000 years ago when mm. it mattered most. Amen. And it took it from me and gave it to everyone that we have that promise and he did intervene. He intervened for us all and we will see our loved ones again. Amen. 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 Dale, one more question. On a day-to-day -day basis, just the living of life day-to-day, -day, what difference does the resurrection make to you? Each day that passes is one day closer. Mm -hmm. I feel one day more urgent, <clears throat> and I ask God to again baptize me in the Holy Spirit so I can spread his love. It has impacted my practice of medicine, the cardiology patients that I see. I look for people who are hurting much more aggressively than I did before. And while I don't force my beliefs on anyone, mm -hmm. It's incredible if you could say two words, and I've always wondered, what should I say when a friend has a bad event? When the patient tells me his story or her story, I look at them and I say the two words, I understand. Mm. That's a link. And if you want to help someone and share your past, that is the thing to do. Thank you, Dale. And Maggie, that last question for you as well. On a day-to-day -day basis, what difference does the resurrection make? The resurrection makes all the difference because you can place your gaze upward. You know, as I go day-to-day -day, and if I put my gaze down at the earthly things of earth and the situation, it's crippling and it's hard to even take a step. It's hard to even breathe. But the resurrection has given us this gaze upward mm. that allows you to breathe and take a deep breath and it allows you to take a step forward one by one in his, with his view. Amen. For sure. I want to thank both of you so much. Deep gratitude and appreciation, not only from me, but from our church family for your willingness to share. And I would say to you, our church family, this is sacred space. This is the kind of space into which many are not allowed to enter. So I want to say thank you so much, Maggie, so much, and Dale, so much for thank your you. willingness to share. God bless you.
It so often seems like Good Friday has the last word. But when we focus on the reality of what Peter experienced, the resurrection of Jesus, it changes everything about today. The preacher and writer Tim Keller says we ought to consider a hypothetical scenario. We hire two women to do a job on an assembly line. We look very carefully until we find identical-looking women. They're the same size. They're the same temperament. They're the same age. We take them into the factory to the assembly line, and we give them identical jobs. What they're going to do is the same in both cases. We want you to take part A and insert it into slot B as the assembly line moves along. You will do that every hour, every day. That will be your job. But we do tell them one thing differently. We tell the first woman, by the way, at the end of the year, we have a $30,000 bonus to give you. We tell the other woman, the second woman, at the end of the year, we have a $30 million bonus to give you. And then we put them to work. Keller says, I can almost guarantee you that before the first week is out, the first woman is going to be complaining. Complaining to the second woman, I can't stand this job. This is so monotonous. This is so boring. There's no way I'm going to make it a whole year in this job. The second woman says, I love this job. I whistle while I work. Keller finally says, it's not the amount of money on which I'm focused. That on which I'm focused is this, a knowledge of what comes in the future can absolutely change the reality of our present. Peter says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's given us a new birth into a living hope by the resurrection from the dead. That is our future. For that reason, we ought to live out the words of the American writer Joseph Bailey, who writing in his book Psalms of Life, penned this psalm. Let's celebrate Easter with the rite of laughter. Christ died and rose and lives. Laugh like a woman who holds her first baby. Our enemy death will soon be destroyed. Laugh like a man who finds he doesn't have AIDS, or he does, but now there's a cure. Christ opened wide the door of heaven. Laugh like children at Disneyland's gates. This world is owned by God, and he will return to rule. Laugh like a man who walks away uninjured from a wreck in his, which his car was totaled. Laugh as if all the people in the whole world were invited to the picnic and then invite them. Laugh? Why? The answer is simple. Because Christ the Lord is risen today.